Okay, thank you, and um, thank you very much for inviting me to um, take part today. Um, my, my name's Kate Carruthers Thomas. I'm a, I'm a research fellow and um, project manager at Birmingham City University, one of the five universities in Birmingham. Um, and the title of uh, this presentation, as you can see, Getting Geographical, Mapping Landscapes of Higher Education, giving you various clues as to kind of um, where I'm coming from. Um, the Getting Geographical, uh, which sounds a bit sort of hesitant is is true really I'm, a, I'm an accidental geographer i did my geography o level um and uh, and didn't really do any geography after that but um, i have increasingly become interested in space and uh, space and power and mobilities and um, and i do use this now to look at a lens uh, as a lens to look at um whatever i'm researching within higher education which is my broad broad field of of, of research um, and particularly I'm interested in relationships of power and how those are expressed um, uh, or articulated through, through space. And mapping, um, again, is a tool uh, that is obviously got geographic connotations. I'm interpreting mapping in a, in a quite a fluid way, should we, see, uh, uh, should we say, as you, as you will see. Um, this, this article is actually the basis of an article that I'm drafting, so any feedback that you have, um, either at the end, through questions, or uh, by email to me, will be um, extremely, um, extremely welcome and very much appreciated. Okay, so, so the, what I want to talk to you today um, about is, uh, or the topic of this presentation, is... Um, the use of mapping as a means of investigating landscapes and changing experiences of, of HE. Um, so this relates, that what I'm going to talk about today relates to my doctoral research, um, which uh, looked into retention and belonging for mature and part-time undergraduates in English higher education. Um, and I, I completed that uh, last year. So I'm going to be talking about mapping in that context, but but I've, um, as I've said, I've, I'm continuing to experiment with this way of looking um, at, um, at higher education, at, at things at, at that field um, in my current research which is actually about gender and higher education and, and careers. Um, all of my research is, at the moment is underpinned by this um, Doreen Massey's concept of space as um, social relations shaped by power. So space is multiple, space is in flux, space is constantly um, moving and changing. And that brings, brings us to um, the very fine word, configuration. Um, I do love to look up a dictionary definition of a word. And uh, uh, so configuration, usefully, um, means we've got the relative disposition or arrangement and the external form and those are both going to be kind of themes of my presentation today so so certainly in terms of mapping external forms and appearance but actually also this rel rel relative um, arrangement this relational um, aspect of um, of space and, and power um, and as I've said I'm, I'm using um, maps and mapping in different ways kind of fluid uh, interpretation um, as a metaphor uh, as an activity and as a product. Um, but I just want to pause initially just to talk about um, maps. Um, and if I were to ask you to think of a map of the world, okay, um, if you were at school in the 
uh, in the UK in the 1960s and 70s, as, as I was, the chances are you might think of this map or something quite like this map, shaped by this map. And this is the uh, Mercator projection. Um, it's ubiquitous. It was certainly ubiquitous on classroom walls when I was growing up and, and possibly possibly others and maybe not maybe not only in the UK. I don't know. It's certainly been a, um, a dominant interpretation of, of the world uh, for, for a very long time. Um, I'm going to say a bit more about it in a, in a moment but I just want to point out that what maps do is what the dominant version of maps do is to abstract and to make complexity um, uh, si simplified they they take a, a view from above um, and um, obviously they're also two-dimensional um, but they abstract out complexity and detail in many cases um, now this projection has been long criticized and you'll note that um, for its technical inaccuracy um, because it distorts the size of objects as, as latitude increases from the equator to the pole. So, so it, Greenland and Antarctica appear much larger uh, in relation to land masses closer to, to the equator. Um, I think uh, Alaska on here is uh, five times as large as... No, Alaska seems the same size as Brazil, although Brazil is five times larger than Alaska. But as important to me uh, about this map is who made it, who's the map maker. Um, and this uh, map you may know was originally um, created by a Flemish nautical cartographer uh, called Gerardus, uh, Gerardus Mercator in 1597. And um, it, was, it was a breakthrough at that point, it was kind of breakthrough technology, but it's obviously um, a Flemish view of the world, a very Eurocentric view of the world. Um, and that has implications when it's the dominant view of the world. One more map. You may also be aware, um, have heard recently, that this new world map has, has won an award for being the most accurate world map um, so far. Created by a Japanese uh, cartographer called Hajime Narukawa. I thought I was going to say that better. Um, and this map basically corrects a lot of those relative proportions and he's done that by flattening flattening out the globe and then doing all sorts of things that I don't understand at the bottom but um, one of the reasons he's done that is because he says we need a new view of the planet we've got all these global issues going on we've got climate change we've got um, territorial disputes all kinds of things and, and we really need to understand our, our world in a more in a more accurate way so by now you're probably thinking I didn't come here for a geography lesson um, so don't worry no more maps in that respect um, but just to say that I really feel that I felt felt that when I was doing my doctoral research and, and any research, in a way, it, it's a kind of map making. And therefore, I as the map maker am very important. I play a role in that. My, my positionality is, is, is important to that. And so what I did in my research, which I'm going to talk to you about now, is, is mapped a particular configuration of retention and belonging and part-time study in, um, in English universities. Okay, just briefly the research that I'm going to uh, talk to you about. Um, it's the title Dimensions of Belonging, Rethinking Retention for Mature Part-Time Undergraduates in English HE, which is a mouthful. Um, the key problem in that, or the reason for the funding originally being made available for that, for that um, PhD study, was, this, was the significant disparity in full-time and part-time retention rates, um, and also then the problem that I 
felt I dis I saw in um, the the very strong association between retention and belonging, um, and which placed mature part-time um, undergraduates in in deficit essentially and other undergraduates as well but particularly mature part-time undergraduates anyone who wasn't a full-time young undergraduate and residential um, at least you know to, in the in the first year so this was a multiple case study of four um, English universities um, three post 92 one pre 92 it involved 25 interviews with staff at different uh, with, with different kind of job roles and five workshops and three individual interviews um, with um, a total of 60 mature part-time undergraduates at those four universities. Um, originally it was a very straight sociological case study as far as I knew. I didn't know what I was doing anyway so I just kind of started. Um, I thought I was going to use Bourdieu. Um, I did use Bourdieu but not in the way I expected. Um, but on the basis of this information, there's nothing to, to, to warn you that this, this may be anything other than, than a kind of sociological study or any, that there will be anything geographical about, about it or, or the analysis. However, um, I'm going to talk about three ways in which I use maps and mapping um, to investigate these questions of belonging in, um, through concepts of space and power um, within these uh, individual universities. These three ways are um, what I'm calling institutional stories, uh, the mapping belonging exercise, and something that I've termed mapping spaces in between. No, mapping spaces between. Okay, institutional stories. What do I what do I mean by that? Um, institutional stories, as I'm interpreting them, are those that are embedded within corporate literature. Um, within the websites, within brochures, within prospecti, uh, within corporate strategies, policies, mission statements, you know, all that kind of stuff that is generated from, from the corporate body that is the university. And these are kind of sanctioned messages. So as, as Massey calls them, they, they're stabilising the meaning of particular envelopes of space-time, securing the organisation as a site of authenticity, singular, fixed and unproblematic in its identity. So, you know, we'll have the elite Russell Group University or we'll have the um, uh, most entrepreneurial university or the different, the different kind of taglines that our universities give, give themselves and promote through, through their literature. Um, and that's part of a positioning process through which universities map and protect distinct locations in a hierarchy of more or less valued HE. So that stratified system a massively stratified system that we have in this country. Um, but these messages, these stories also emerged in the interviews that I was doing with senior staff. Um, they were offering this kind of coherent picture of, of their university and obviously as somebody senior and particularly strategically senior, they kind of have that responsibility to do, do what the, map, the world map does, give that overview, um, give that view from above. Um, untroubled by complexities and, and difficulties. Um, but what I found in the research is that those stories really strain against the changes in the sector, against the changing configurations of, of, of higher education. They lose currency um, and they, uh, universities outgrow their narratives um, for, for all sorts of reasons. And, and, and I'm not saying there's anything kind of um, malignant or malicious going on there. Um, 
So what happens is that these institutional stories, um, they they do what uh, Sarah Ahmed um, says. They too often these institutional speech acts uh, do not go beyond pluralist uh, understandings of diversity and are non-performative in the sense that they fail to deliver what they've promised. So let me give you some examples. There you go. No. <laughs> um, Here's some, these are actual quotes, uh, all of these are up from individual uh, senior members of staff um, that I interviewed at one or other of the universities. So, we're a middle-sized university with a caring community feel and a vocational focus. So you can see that place, can't you? You've, you, you know, you know the, that kind of place. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a nice uh, bite-sized um, description. Here's another one. It's in the lifeblood of this institution to recruit mature and part-time students. And therefore, it has to become second nature to it has become second nature to us to make sure that we're set up for them. In the lifeblood, that's a really strong, really strong statement. Uh, here's another one. We are a very proud, widening participation institution. Lots of part-time students, lots of mature students, quite a high proportion of students with disabilities. Now you can guess that that wasn't the pre-92 <laughs> university, but it was one of the post-92s. The problem is, though, that um, I also, when I was talking to these um, people about belonging um, and retention and part-time students and mature students, bearing in mind the absolute crash in part-time student numbers that, that was going on throughout my research and continues to go on, um, I'm absolutely sure there's stuff that could be done to create, enhance or strengthen that sense of belonging for part-time part and mature students, dot, dot, dot. So sure there is, but they haven't done it. Or they're not doing it. Um, you may want to shift to accommodate the needs and issues of other groups of students, but the logistics and costs are quite difficult. So quite how that fits into any of those, I'm, is, I'm not quite sure. Um, and there was also a sense of um, a more nuanced understanding of different, the diversity of students in universities, um, perhaps particularly post-92 universities. Um, so it's been shown it's got the greatest impact on retention if students get this sense of belonging, but it may not be something that particularly applies to part-time mature students who don't have so much of that sense of, I need to feel I am part of this. So we've got this very kind of, bi don't like the word bio, two, you know, a two-sided picture um, coming out here with, with um, professionals within the universities contradicting their institutional stories. Um, but also understanding that it's not that simple. It's not so simple. Um, Middle-sized university with a caring community feel and a vocational focus. It, it, it's still a very complex place. So whatever label you put on it. And so what happens is that spaces open up between rhetoric and, and experience. And another thing that these, um, these stories do, institutional stories do, is that they kind of say who belongs. Who, who belongs? So here, um, uh, clearly everyone belongs in, in this one at the bottom. Um, you know, uh, and in fact, their, their thing was they, don't, they didn't really do widening participation. It was more inclus inclusivity. They were more about inclusion. Um, mature part-time students were definitely belonging there, um, but, but actually, they, you know, uh, in somewhere else, they were quite difficult to actually, you know, do we, can we afford to keep the cafe open after the normal contact hours can we afford you know to have to have longer um, longer opening times of student services no we can't actually so 
So even though we're a really inclusive university, they'll just have to they'll just have to find their way around it. Okay, so what I wanted to do was to to find out more about this space between, about these experiences that people were actually having of these universities, the part-time mature um, students were actually having of these universities, and, and how those that were different from the norm, from the part from the full-time young students, um, how they negotiated a sense of connection or belonging or, or whether they did or they didn't. Um, and so that was why I um, created the mapping belonging exercise. I say created, I, I, it's based on um, a type of geographical research called participatory diagramming, widely used in, in across disciplines actually now. Um, but basically it involved student participants in creating visual maps of belonging on their campuses. So looking at their campus maps and actually using those maps to create their own maps of, of belonging and not belonging. The reason I used that method was um, because belonging is obviously a really intangible, maybe emotive, um, difficult, really slippery thing. And um, maybe people have very taken for granted um, ideas about it or they don't think about it or they make assumptions. And with participant generated visual materials, it gives participants a distance from those kind of slippery, difficult to, to grasp things. Uh, involves the participants reflecting on their activities in a way that's not usually done. So it, it gives them distance from what they're usually immersed in, allows them to articulate thoughts and feelings that usually remain implicit. So what the exercise involved was student participants, obviously, and, and that was in, um, it was very flexible, so I could do it with individuals, I could do it with pairs, threes, or, or in, in one case I did it with five groups of five. Um, I gave each of them uh, a, a copy of their campus map uh, of their university and um, two different colour pens. And I asked them to mark on their map um, places that they felt they belonged, if there was anywhere, and with another, the other colour, places that they felt they didn't belong. Um, again, if if there was, uh, if there were, were, if they were able to distinguish those different places, we also called them hot and cold spots. We also referred to it as comfortable, uncomfortable. So there was some kind of jiggling around with the with the terminology there. But what I found was it was a really really good trigger for discussion. So whatever the products were, it actually was also helped the discussion. Um, and uh, help people to talk about things and realise that um, you know the person they sat next to had a completely different view or, or they agreed or um, had similar feelings about, about a place. Um, and, and there was also an unanticipated outcome which was that uh, there was a, a one place where students were literally, part-time mature students were literally off the map. I couldn't do the exercise with them because the, the map didn't cover where they were being taught, which actually says a lot about where these students who are slightly different, perhaps doing different kinds of courses, tend to be accommodated, you know, how they are peripheral often to the kind of main life of, of the campus. So there was an on the map, off the map uh, dynamic going on. So here's some uh, examples. Uh, won't, I'm not going to spend very long on these, but just uh, on this one, the yellow, is uh, the belonging and the blue is the absolutely not belonging, hate it. 
Um, the yellow uh, represents the the kind of base of these students. They're kind of there was a mature part-time mature student kind of base within the university, and the other one is um, the The other yellow is the classroom or the room, the the building in which they had their all their classes. These people came in three three hours a week. So that was all of the campus that they that they knew. And the bit that they really hated was the front entrance of the university, um, where all the young students used to kind of hang around and and not give them not hang, not give them leaflets about going clubbing and, and stuff like that. And so they found that really alienating, like not not young enough. So very limited engagement with with the campus. So a lot of a lot of students right across the the, the piece said, I didn't realise the campus was this big. You know, what's that? What's that? What's that? I don't know. It's another one. Um, the green here is the not belonging. The pink is the belonging. Again, that's the classroom. That's, that's where that, that, um, these students were, were taught. And this, um, you can quite see, but it's striped. So it's red, it's pink and green. So depending on the time of the week that the student went to this, this is the learning centre. If that was the weekend, that was okay. It was more comfortable. If it was in the week, it was full of eighteen-year-olds, nineteen-year-olds. They didn't like it. There wasn't. It was. It was intimidating. And this is a student that had been at this university for five years. Okay. Um, didn't know what these. Didn't know what these other buildings were. Really. Uh, didn't have any use for them. Uh, accommodation, whatever. Student union. No use for them. And this is the one where they were literally off the map. And I don't know if you can read this, but it says we have never been to this campus. <laughs> this is their campus. Um, and the arrow at the far here points off to where their, their teaching room was. Um, so someone said, um, I've just put a cold blue line right, right around it because uh, it's, it's, I, I, don't, I don't know what it is. I don't, it doesn't mean anything to me. So the interesting thing um, was that there was real consistency across the case studies of, of how, how part-time mature students felt um, that really came out during this, during this exercise. So there was limited engagement with, with the campus as a whole. Um, uh, quite a lot of the students would experience the campus as a ghost town. There were often places that they found uh, considered safe havens, such as this kind of base base room, base kind of department. Um, it depended um, a lot on when they were coming in. So obviously students who were coming at weekends uh, didn't get a sense of, of the bigger campus at all. And as I said, this kind of off the map, on the map um, thing as well. But what I did also get from this exercise was this um, sense of um, how they did negotiate a sense of belonging and a, and a sense of connection. Um, so there were students who had really um, very powerful imaginary senses of belonging to the university um, and imaginary, <coughs> imagining themselves in a hat and gown, cap and gown and graduating. Because um, obviously part-time students, it's a long, it's a long road, you know. Um, and, and often students had waited quite a while to even start their their university um, career. You know, they waited till all the kids were out of the way or, or one or one or the other thing. Um, so, th so there was a strong kind of imaginary sense of, of belonging. There was a sense of ritual that some people had. So, so you know, you've seen the, I'm, I'm sure all your um, universities have, have hoodies with university of whatever um, that, that, that students wear. Um, 
I asked some of the students about about these, and one one student said, um, "I do have a hoodie." So one time I've been to the student union. I went in on the first year and I bought a hoodie, um, uh, but I only wear it at home. When I wear it, I put it on when I do my uni work. So it's like this private sense of belonging, private sense of taking on an identity for a, for a very um, distinct period of time. Um, so that student actually had quite good feelings about being a student of that university, but they didn't. It wasn't necessarily um, very obvious. Um, a one mature one mature student played um, snooker with her grandson in the student union, and she just said, I, "I felt so great about this. This is my university." Um, so belonging is really complex, um, and and that brings me on to the final uh, means of mapping that I did, which was the um, the mapping spaces between. Um, talked about the changing configurations of HE and particularly in relation to part-time students um, you know we have really diverse landscapes now um, predominantly um, represented in these in these binaries um, pre and post 92 um, the different mission groups Russell groups and the rest essentially um, traditional non-traditional um, you know I'm, uh, you can think of others I'm sure um, but we still have these normative discourses for talking about about higher education. In fact, I got really annoyed on there was a Twitter thing the other day. Twitter, really, but I'm, I seem to find myself on it far too often. Um, and some higher education kind of group had put on um, engaged students. It's been shown that engaged students have a better student experience. And I and I just said, engaged with what? Better than what? You know, and it's like there's some version that, that, that students are meant to kind of live up to, but we have such a diverse student population now. It's redundant, this, this, this idea, but redundant, but it's, it's very dominant. Um, and so that, that, cele that celebrates certain identities, certain student identities and practices. Um, and um, so what I'm trying to do in this next bit, which I'll whiz through, um, is pay attention to spatial relationships in order to try and map some of that diversity. So how space is inhabited, represented by whom, and I'm calling it mapping spaces between. Um, okay, so the writing's really small here. Um, okay, so this, I, 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 I experimented in my thesis with ways of, of, of mapping ideas like retention, engagement, so here's institution-centric retention. So this is a retention from the point of view of the university. So you've got, it's, it's very linear, it's very boxed in, it's very homogenous. You start here and you end here and you don't interrupt. And, and doing that means that, you know, it helps the university be, um, it helps them in the league tables. Um, and, uh, you know, whatever percentage, you've got a high retention rate, you're higher up the league tables usually. Um, compare that to what I identified as mature part-time engagement in higher education, which was very multiple, very interlocking, um, so heterogeneous individuals, lots of simultaneous multiple commitments and complexity. Um, and as you can imagine, you put one on top of the other and they don't really, they don't really fit. Um, but, but I think perhaps in that not fitting, this kind of idea of mapping out these things in this way, perhaps that can help higher education institutions to think about where they are what they are in relation to their students lives where they fit in relation to their students lives so they're not the center of these um, mature part-time students nor 
actually um, many others. So, so rather than that just being a not fitting, it could be a, a, a starting point to thinking about um, different ways to, to work with these students. Um, and just the final one, I don't know if people can see that, but I, I came up with something called shared ownership, which I won't, I won't go into now. But again, that was, that was a, a sense perhaps of, um, of, of staff working with students to kind of work, you know, in a, in a shared ownership way to work their way through um, a, a higher education career, however long that took. Um, but that's another story. Uh, I haven't got time really to um, go into that in detail. So, um, in conclusion, so I've talked about three ways in which um, I use mapping to investigate kind of changing landscapes and, and experiences of higher education. Um, so this was thinking about space as social relations shaped by power, um, the product of, of, of interrelations on multiple scales, that's the Massey uh, understanding of, of, of space. So it helped me to view universities, each individual case study, uh, as a space of multiple centres experienced in multiple diverse ways. And so what that was doing was trying to disrupt this singular normative view that we have of a student, uh, make sense of coexisting stories within institutional spaces. So those students who map their belonging, their, their, their stories are no less meaningful or important than, than any other student in, in, in the university. Um, so the coexisting stories. And a particularly useful way of um, examining power and highlighting the experiences of, of peripheral actors in, in higher education. Thank you. Thank you.